The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode 179 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. This is the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in both work and life. And in this episode of the podcast, which is part of our Women in Civil Engineering series, we're talking to Hannah Albertus Benham, a senior water resources and environmental engineer at Wood, about the challenges of working in a highly scientific project with real impacts to a community and how teamwork, communications, and collaboration can be harnessed to make that project successful. I'm your host for today's episode. I'm Chris Knutson. I'm a chartered and professional civil engineer coming to you from my home base somewhere in the lovely Oxfordshire, England countryside. And with that, let's go ahead and just dive right into episode 179 of the Civil Engineering Podcast with Hannah Albertus Benham. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, everyone. Now it's time for the Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week. And I am here with Hannah. Hannah, welcome to the uh, Civil Engineering Podcast. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me so much. The listeners for the show will have a chance to read your background and, and bio and other materials on the show notes for the podcast, but it's always useful just, you know, it's one thing to read it, but it's also another thing to actually hear it from the individual. So would you mind just sharing with our listeners a little bit about, you know, what do you do on a daily basis and where do you focus your energies on your day-to-day job? I've been uh, leading a team from Wood, providing technical support to the state of Minnesota here. And what we're doing is helping them and the communities in the East Metro of the Twin Cities that have been impacted by PFAS contamination, helping them to plan for the future for their drinking water supply. So there's 14 communities that we've been working with along with the state agencies and, and other groups and stakeholders. Basically, for wood, we've been supporting them technically, so providing you know drinking water and PFAS expertise along along the way. So it's been about a, a three year process now. My day to day work kind of consists of attending a lot of meetings to discuss all different kinds of things, from technical approaches to scheduling and deadlines and progress updates and a lot of quality checking and writing and reviewing and etc. I'm the project manager and uh, essentially acting as the liaison between our, our technical team of engineers and scientists and with the client, which is uh, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. So, What I've found, and I'd be kind of curious to your thoughts on this, I found in often cases the technical aspects are maybe the least challenging in a project. And in this case, you're interacting with communities, which especially in the issue of PFAS, can be, uh, I think, uh, kind of an emotionally charged issue when you start talking about some drinking water. Some of our listeners, no doubt, will be familiar with PFAS, PFOA, the forever chemicals. But could you just maybe for some of our listeners who are in the civil engineering environment or are listening here today, but don't really understand what that acronym is and what it is, share a little bit about what is PFAS and then more importantly, maybe what's the issue? I mean, why are the communities concerned about this? Why should any of us be concerned about it? So PFAS stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Um, it's a group of chemicals and there's, I think, 
maybe over 6,000 of them so far that we know of that have been manufactured over the years. And that's, that's been going on since even dating back to like the 1940s. So it's one of those things that's kind of been around for a long time, but wasn't really well understood as far as its impacts to human health, ecology, and the environment. So what happened is, you know, kind of in the 90s, I want to say, is when scientists, chemical engineers and such from different manufacturers started to kind of recognize that, you know, maybe there was some impacts. And so I think it it kind of grew from there where it kind of expanded into the environmental and risk assessment world where they, they finally started to study it and now are understanding more and more that that does have impacts on human health. And so that's been documented pretty thoroughly now by EPA and other groups like the ASTDR, I think is the acronym. So they do the, the toxicology uh, studies for the EPA and, and kind of come out with all that technical info and, and background information and actually just release some new information that you can find on the EPA website on PFAS. It's an emerging contaminant. We're doing our best to try to stay on top of it, stay on top of the science and make sure that, that folks are protected. So when it comes to the East Metro and the contamination east of the Twin Cities there, that's uh, due to some legacy dumping sites. So sites where the chemical manufacturer has in the past put their waste materials. And so that's been slowly leaching into the groundwater in the East Metro. And it has pretty extensive effect on the groundwater aquifers there where folks in that area get their drinking water. I'd be kind of curious because you touched a little bit on the work that you're doing with all these different communities east of the Twin Cities. If maybe you could just unpack for us a, a bit more about what that work entails. And this again is just, you know, kind of guessing as you're talking through this particular issue, but there's probably some monitoring involved in that. There's, there, maybe there's remediation activities are in there. What's involved in the work you're actually delivering and interfacing with on these communities? There's, you know, kind of this growing environmental awareness that's brought a sharper focus and need to take better care of our planet and resources just more broadly. So this project is kind of an example of us, you know, supporting and finding solutions to create a cleaner and more protected environment. We're working with the state of Minnesota. They sued the manufacturer and and had a, a settlement. And so there's this fund that's out there and that was reached in 2018. And so from there, then the state started kind of building a plan, working with another consultant that works primarily on national resources damages claims, which is what that the settlement was, the first ever PFAS NRDC settlement. They worked with that consultant for a while and determined that there was this need for technical support, um, not only for PFAS specific experience, but also on the drinking water side of things. So infrastructure, treatment, and that kind of thing. So we were brought in late 2018 to help with that and to provide that technical expertise. So we're kind of helping them to navigate this emerging contaminant and helping to you know, provide education to the communities and to the, the stakeholders that are involved. They had two work groups set up. One is consists of the members of the community and businesses. And then the other one is more of the city's, the community's leadership. These two work groups have been working in tandem throughout this process. 
they had concerns. They had a lot of questions. They brought a lot to the table. And it was really important for us to give them to help with this, this conceptual plan that ultimately we're working towards drinking water supply plan to give them something that they could be proud of, that they could take ownership in because they've really been instrumental throughout this process. So we wanted them to, you know, at the end of the day, when we have this plan in hand to feel like it's their plan, to feel like, feel confident and to feel like they were in the best hands possible. So it was kind of our job to provide that expertise and provide that level of comfort almost to these stakeholders. What I want to touch on, though, because it's you brought up a lot of different components that I think are such and so important, you know, really in any program that's being delivered or any especially technically challenging project that has interface with a local community and, and kind of a wider populace. And that was talking about how, you know, in your day-to-day job, you're interfacing with everyone from very scientific, technical individuals who are, you know, are really into the science, if you will, of PFAS and the chemicals and what's going on with that. No, like you're probably dealing with, you know, environmental engineers, you've got civil engineers involved, you've got the stakeholders, you've got all these different people that bring in different perspectives, a very diverse array of individuals. I'd be really curious to hear from you, you know, your perspectives on how having that diversity has helped. And then maybe on the opposite of that, even provided you with some challenges in getting to a conceptual plan and the different stages that you're going through and what you've learned from that journey. So there's a bunch of stuff I just put into that question. What's been good about the diversity? What hasn't been good about all that diversity? What are the lessons that maybe you've drawn so far from this journey? We had a really great team, number one, working on this project throughout the process. So it's been about a three-year process and a lot of careful consideration, you know, looking at big picture ideas, but really when it comes down to it, there's a lot of details that go into this. Even though we're working on a conceptual plan, we had to work hands-on, one-on-one. That's what allowed us to gain the confidence of the communities and and the folks, the stakeholders that were involved. Um, It really couldn't have been possible without the team. A lot of knowledgeable expertise and, and dedication as we kind of all grew and learned through the process. But we are all, you know, focused on that commitment to deliver the final plan. And so we collaborated a lot internally, and that kind of allowed us all to kind of embrace everyone's different skills. And I think that that diversity of skills is really important when it comes to that kind of stuff. The more backgrounds and and lived experiences that you have on your team, particularly for projects with such engaged stakeholders, you're more prepared. It's not just technical. Like you said, you have to be able to relate to them, to the situation and the people on a personal level. So for instance, you know, we had mothers with young children that would come into meetings and be concerned that they haven't had safe drinking water perhaps in the past, that it's, you know, kind of now just coming to light. There were generations of families in some cases who lived there their whole life, wondering if they're safe or if they're gonna have issues down the line because of this. You can't just brush these types of things off because they're not technical experts. Their voice and opinion has value and you always have to do what they say, but you have to learn from their viewpoint. And once you can take that kind of all into consideration, you can lead better communications. You can have better strategies in the future, for instance. 
And that leads me to kind of the next question, which is around that communications piece, because having a conversation with a group of engineers or technically backgrounded individuals who understand what PFAS is, understand water flow and, and the different aspects that we as engineers are going to be able to understand. And often cases, it sounds like you're interfacing with individuals who don't have that understanding, um, who don't have a technical background. And so being able to communicate that, that information, take data, take hard engineering information, turn that into a product that a non-technical person would be able to understand sounds like it was a bit of a challenge, probably led to a lot of late working evenings as you were kind of going through this. What kind of recommendations do you have or would be willing to share on what that looked like and what are some of the things that you learned going through that process? For me, explaining technical information is sort of a process. So I I tend to like to listen a lot and take in what I'm hearing and the feedback that we're getting from my colleagues, from the stakeholders or whatever the case may be. But, you know, kind of starting with the technical information and then trying to gain this higher level understanding. And then after taking that in, repeating it back out to the technical staff to make sure that I'm assessing it from a high level, but still getting all the facts straight. So kind of repeating it back to them, plain language, make sure that the content is still accurate in its simplest form, and then add visuals as much as possible. (laughs) That was an important part for sure. But, you know, then at the end of the day, you have to go and, you know, be and interact with these people, the stakeholders and and the work group members, and, and then you're sort of inviting this feedback. And that can be terrifying <laughs> um, as part of a communication piece, like opening up your engineering diary for the world to see. It's a lot of detailed information that's important for them to understand so that you know, we can all move forward with this collective understanding. So you have to kind of remind yourself that we're all there for the same goal, despite posing opinions maybe of how we get there. But it takes courage and it takes an open mind people are going to disagree. You're going to be wrong (laughs) in some cases, you know. I mean, it's been a three-year process. Of course, we've found errors and and tweaks and things like that. So, and someone might have a better idea than what you thought of, even if they're not technical. And you need to be ready for that. And you need to be ready to kind of pivot and modify and refine. And so that's kind of the scientific process, right? You know, and it should be kind of honored in that way. We have to embrace any changes that come our way, we can't just be stuck in the mud. So the goal that I mentioned, ultimately getting to this conceptual plan and a safer environment in the future and safer drinking water is really important. And one of the challenges we face is, is when to kind of rein that in then. So we're, we're putting together all this technical information and we're kind of going towards this goal of determining what our plan is, fine tuning that. But at some point we have to be done with the plan too. Um, And so you can't just keep continuing to refine and refine and refine because that'll just go on forever. So that's the other challenge is is knowing when to rein it in then and end that conceptual process in order to make way for implementation. That's where we're headed now. We're we're really close. At some point, there's always got to be a, you know, target end date. Otherwise, there's been many targets uh, that have been set over the years. It's been a process for sure. 
as you've gone through that process, I mean, you, you, in the comments you just shared, there's a couple things that I keyed in on. Because again, I, I think in this one, you know, when a lot of us will be involved in project design teams, we'll be involved in uh, charrettes or planning reviews, design reviews, whatever they may be. And it's, again, it's all engineers or project delivery type people that are associated with that, maybe contractors or clients that have client side representatives that are in there that understand, again, engineering. As soon as you bring in individuals who, from, let's say from a wider audience, the public specifically, you know, I can see where it can become very challenging. And even for individuals who feel very confident in doing public speaking and having interface and being able to get up in front of an audience of technical peers and present items to them, it can be daunting. The level of anxiety going into those types of uh, environments, because you, you don't know what you're going to get in return. Not focusing so much on preparation for that. I'm curious to hear from you because anyone who's in a leadership role and is involved even in project management, I think it's important for them, and it's the same for myself, to have it really kind of trusted advisors that we can go to, mentors or whoever it may be that we can bounce things off of and go, hey, how do I handle this? As you've gone through this journey over the past years, what was your support network like? Because I can only imagine in some of these meetings, especially with the public where there had to be anxiety as you went into those. So just, did you have that kind of a support network you could share? Or did you find yourself like I'm out here on the end of this limb and I just hope everything kind of works out? Our team was really great and really was the support network. A lot of the team are, are senior engineers or senior hydrogeologists, for instance. I'm definitely able to draw from them quite a bit. And that's important to have that support there. Before COVID, <laughs> we had in-person meetings once a month and our staff from other parts of the country would actually fly in to be there. So we not only had that support behind the scenes, but physically there in person. And, and a lot of times, you know, we'd be passing the mic around the room and whatever anybody had to offer. Or, you know, Shalene was there. <laughs> My colleague Shalene, um, she's our, our PFAS program manager uh, for the company, our global PFAS program manager. And so she was definitely a big part of the process early on and, and helped to really was um, another source of support in that process. You obviously had that kind of a support network. And I think it also highlights the fact that each of us, as we go through this journey in our careers, we enter into projects that sometimes even programs that can be challenging. The importance of being able to have that network of support, you know, around you and and, and really it's not a, a one person show as you're going through. You've got to have that support. They were also presenting too. I wasn't the only one up in front of people. Sure, the wealth or the blame, which is where you want to go on. Absolutely. What kind of advice can you give? Because this show really part of the you know, part of the things that we do in the Citizen Engineering Podcast is really also around being able to share insight for others who are listening. Go, you know, that's an area I really want to get into. So I'd be curious, maybe just share like what are some of your thoughts about what a young woman that's in civil engineering that's coming in that is interested in having a career similar to yours? What are some of the things that they want to keep in mind as they go through to, to kind of prep them for it? I work with a lot of great women. I'm lucky to work in a company where, in fact, my manager has always been a woman. <laughs> I work with a lot of fantastic women and men, of course, but I'm encouraged to see more and more women in leadership. I think that's really important and really something that I hate to use the term glass ceiling, but it, it does kind of break that barrier for you a little bit as you're coming up in engineering or whatever type of work that you do. 
I tend to identify with the concept about kind of honing in a little bit here, but women tend to hesitate, I would say. Second guess, doubt themselves or what they're doing or whatever. I think that that's one of the barriers that I've found that's the most difficult and and maybe most prevalent. You know, if you want something, you have to ask for it. You can't just kind of continue on and expect things to just fall at your lap, obviously. But I think women in particular have been a little more hesitant. You know, they, they possess that hesitation for a reason. It's kind of been ingrained in us. But that's something that's hard to break through sometimes, but it's really important to do that because you need to be present. You need to be at the table and you have to do it. You can't hesitate. That's a barrier that's hindered the progress of women in engineering and in business in general. And we're not inferior by any means, but there has been this fundamental perception for centuries that we are. That's a hard thing to break through and we will overcome and we're getting there, but in STEM is definitely one of those areas where we can improve. So I feel like don't hesitate. You really have to push through and and put yourself out there because if you don't, somebody else will. We're going to come back in just a moment for the uh, civil engineering hot seat and we'll get a chance to hear a little bit more about you personally and some of the great things that you do just to kind of keep yourself at the uh, top of your game. So we'll be back in just a moment, everybody. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. We're back for the CE Hot Seat segment. Hannah, are you ready to go on the hot seat? I'm ready. Okay, so here we go. First question, which we like to share every single time, is uh, you know what kind of are there any rituals that you practice each day? So this could be something that you do in the morning, maybe something you do at lunch, maybe in the evening, or maybe all three times. But there, you know things that you do, you feel really contribute to your success and and being able to be sustained in success in your professional endeavors. I feel like since the pandemic, it's been a work in progress. I can't say that I have a a ritual per se, but I do stand usually at my desk. I've had some back issues and so it's kind of forced me into it a little bit, but I, I enjoy standing because I think it keeps me more energized throughout the day. I remember sitting at a desk and tending to fall asleep sometimes even And so standing, you can't fall asleep standing unless you're really tired. So (laughs) I feel like that's probably my most consistent thing that I've been doing lately. Is there a book that you might recommend to to all the listeners, you know, one that, that either was recommended to you that you read that you found was impactful or one that maybe you share with others and say, hey, here's a book that I think, you know, professionally you should read this because it's going to really benefit you. Any books that are in your, in your library that you think people need to take a look at? I'm admittedly not a bookworm. I mostly listen to audiobooks, and they're usually like comedians or autobiographical, that kind of thing, like while I'm traveling. I do have one non-technical recommendation that I have been recommending quite a bit, actually, since I read it. It's called Attached. It's actually about relationships, and it's about the attachment theory. It's kind of getting into more non-civil engineering related territory, but if anybody has relationship issues or just wants to learn more about inner workings of people's relationships, that's a really good one that I think has helped a lot of people, including myself. 
I mean, those are the recommendations because at the end of the day, I mean, we're in civil engineering, which is, you know, really societally focused. And of course, relationships are, you know, quite frankly, relationships is the glue that keeps all of us together, whether it's in business or personal. So I think that's a, a great piece of advice. I'll add that right on my pad here to go look it up on Amazon. As you kind of think back over your career, you've had managers, you just shared with us that, you know, you've had a woman as a manager over a good portion of your career, all of your career. But as you look back across all the different managers you've had, is there one of them that kind of sticks out? Don't share their name, but, you know, one of them that sticks out about um, that really left you with, they've got the attributes that I want to carry forward when I get into a management role. So is there anyone that, that left that imprint with you? And what was that imprint that they left? I have had some really good managers. I've been lucky in that way. I think that they've been good managers. I mean, they're good at managing people, keeping track of things. They're very organized. So, you know, those are the types of traits that it sounds weird, but that I look up to because, you know, we're all kind of striving to be better at those kinds of things. The other part is really being encouraged and always being provided with new opportunities. That was something very, very important to me when I started at this company, I mean, the possibilities are seemingly em- endless and, you know, it wouldn't be possible without that encouragement and that just openness and willingness for them to almost take a chance on you at first when you first start out. So that was really lucky to have been given those opportunities because it's turned me into the engineer that I wanted to be. We call this the infamous uh, civil engineering elevator advice question. We're coming out of the pandemic, so this is a little more relevant now that we can get in. You're getting into an elevator, and you're in there with another civil engineer. You've got like 30 or 40 seconds uh, with them, and they say, hey, give me a piece of advice. What's one piece of advice, whether it's professional, personal, that's going to contribute to their success? What's that piece of advice that you give them in 30 to 40 seconds? It really depends on what they want to do. For me, I was really interested in getting all different kinds of experience more of a broad spectrum. So I think that in that light, I would say take as many opportunities as you can that come your way in terms of type of work or even professional societies and and joining groups like that. You should be open to all those possibilities. And even if it sounds like something that you wouldn't expect or wouldn't want to do, try it. You have to be open and being helpful, I think, is also important to really keep your management and supervisors in mind and and try to assist them as best you can, whether, you know, they're giving you project work or not. Um, If you can always try to keep in mind, you know, how can I help them? How can I make their lives easier? Because that's what's going to help you succeed in the future. They're going to come back to you and they're going to have you in mind and in a good light because you get what you put in. And if you don't get what you put in, if you're not If that's not being reciprocated, then it's time to think about moving on. All right, Hannah, when you look back over your career, what's one action that you took that you feel greatly contributed to your career success, you know, so much so that you you still remember it today? There's a couple that come to mind. The one big one I think that influenced my career the most was moving from rural South Dakota, where I grew up and ended up getting my first job to Minneapolis, Minnesota to join Wood, which was AMAC at the time. So that was a a big one. But I think another one that might help or be of more value to listeners is taking the opportunity to join ITRC, which is the Interstate Technology and Regulatory Council. So I joined their PFAS team, I think 
2015 or so when, when it was started up, right after it started up. That provided me with so many opportunities to learn. There were leaders there from across the country, across the world in some cases, that are, you know, were knowledgeable and are, were the leaders in the state of science of PFAS. I got to travel, I got to network, I got to hone my technical writing skills, <laughs> writing their uh, guidance documents. So it was my office manager that encouraged me and encouraged staff in the office to join the team, to join a, one of the teams at ITRC. It was probably one of the best things that I've done since I've been at Wood. Really took it to the next level. Hannah, this is great conversation. Wonderful inputs here. I've got a book I got to go look up now. I'm kind of re-energized on uh, some advice here to, to be successful in the career. And I, and I hope that everyone else who's joined us and is listening to this is walking away with some motivation as well. So thanks a lot for being here. People might want to reach out and connect with you or learn more about the, the wonderful things that Wood is doing in the, in the PFAS arena. So beside going to the wood.com uh, website, you know, where else might they want to go look to try to get some more information, either connect with you or, or just get more information in general about the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. And Wood obviously has, you know, websites and things. We've got a site specifically that talks a little bit about the, the project that I'm working on, but there's also the settlement website. So if you want to look that up, you can just look at Minnesota Settlement, PFAS Settlement, and that'll be pretty easy to find. But yeah, uh, reach out to me if you want to connect. I'm on LinkedIn, Anna Albertus Benham. Anna, thanks again for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Wish you all the best. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can go find the show notes for it over at civilengineeringpodcast.com. That's civilengineeringpodcast, all one word, dot com. Look for episode 179. There you'll find links to all the uh, different websites we mentioned books. Uh, You can find out more about the project that uh, Hannah discussed in the interview, as well as uh, just general information about PFAS and PFOA. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.